Welcome to the Green Data Center Podcast, Season 4, Episode 3. Of course, please like and subscribe in order to understand what the next Green Data Center Podcast is going to be coming out. And we're looking to, of course, not just talk about green data centers, but all the data center industry, really. And a lot of that can come in investments, and we'll be talking about some of that today. Of course, this podcast isn't just for us. It's for everybody that's out there. So if you have a subject that you'd like to hear more about or would like to have a question answered, we'd be glad to help out. And how do you do that? Well, you can reach out to our website, greendatacenterman.com and fill out the contact form or just reach out via email and we'll be glad to answer here or just get back to you in person via email. For those new to the industry, we also have courses available there at a discounted code, so please use those links on the front page. I wanted to start with a discussion on the national standard for data centers in China. They have what's called the GB 50174 and their latest came out in 2017 so over five years ago right but it was implemented January 2018 across China and that's what they've been following but it is a good framework for how they're looking to design data centers now the standard itself is rather thin so it's less than 100 pages and depending on your translation it's going to be even less far less than that But it does include like a lot of the provisions that you might see out of a standard. And that includes the general requirements for each one of the disciplines that you might see. And it starts out even with just where your locations are, the site selection, the layouts, those kinds of things. And it it looks at the environmental requirements that you're looking at. And by environmental, I do mean the interior environmental, not necessarily what you need for air quality, that kind of thing. But it goes into the building, the structure, as well as the HVAC and the electrical systems and how all that can be laid out. And it's very open-ended as far as that goes. Now, it also includes a lot of other things such as the utilities and it has electromagnetic shielding as a section and some of those other aspects that you might look for. And it also includes fire protection and safety and networking and a few other elements as well. And it touches on all of those in a decent manner. But of course, with any of these sections, it's only a couple pages long because of that. And that means that you just have a lot of uh, open-ended sort of non-direction where it might have a standard that says, hey, consider this or do this, but it doesn't necessarily dictate what you should be really doing with your particular data center. Like a lot of jurisdictions, it's going to have something open for interpretation. And you might recognize some of the things, the elements that are pulled out of, say, ASHRAE or IEEE, those standards where it's not necessarily something that's adopted everywhere, but it's great practice, but there's a lot more bulk to it. So if you start reading through any of those datacom books by ASHRAE, you realize that there's a lot of knowledge there, and there's a lot of extra that goes along with that to kind of prove a point whenever the standard is written. Now, what this GB50174 Um, is written is it it takes out everything all the fluff all the suggestions everything like that and it just boils it down to this is what you should consider doing as a standard in China and that can be quite enough for a lot of people just to say this is what you should do and we don't need any other direction we'll take it from here because we're experts and they can go ahead and design it the way they need to now those authorities that having jurisdiction in China are important, but it's more of a national level as far as that control goes. So they don't allow cryptocurrency, for instance. 
so there's no mining facilities, that kind of thing. And whenever you're looking at that data center, it's not like some other places where you build the data center and they shall come and, hey, we'll take a, a you know a cryptocurrency mining for a little bit as long as it fills up our data center and they pay the bills, it's certainly fine. But in China, that's you know not really the case. So cryptocurrency might not be allowed, but you might have blockchain. So there is that fine line of, well, a cryptocurrency is typically set up with a blockchain. So what you know what's the dividing point there well that's one of the things that the chinese government and what they're looking at is trying to determine as well what's good better best for them and right now for them just to say look no cryptocurrency mining you can do that in other countries we'll make even through bitmain they're one of the main corporations that, that makes these crypto miners is based in china and they have like 60 70 80 percent of the market share for those crypto miners but they're not going to allow it in their own country. So they're going to be, of course, exporting those and uh, allowing all that crypto mining outside of the country, but just not within the data centers that, that follow the standard. Beyond China, I was looking to see if there was other nations that had adopted this Chinese standard GB50174, and I have yet to find one. So if you know of one where a country has adopted it, um, whether it's Taiwan or you know Singapore took a look at it and revised it and came up with their own, It'd be good just to understand that to see if that's really taken off anywhere else. Right now, I'm seeing mostly European and United States standards that a lot are adopting. And they're just taking things from, again, from those some of those big groups like ASHRAE, IEEE, and adopting those, whether it's a certain year or certain aspects to that, and then adapting a little bit of those standards somehow to fit more within their country or within their locality. Also in the news lately is Riot Blockchain. They are a Bitcoin mining company. That's their main thing, their main thing that they produce. But they made the news for not doing that, but actually making more money getting power credits. Now this really demonstrates the success of how the CEO of Riot Blockchain, Jason Less, structured this whole this whole deal. And the way that they did it was they can go ahead and use as much power as they would like, but they also support the grid. In other words, they're not taking away from the grid. And the grid operator, ERCOT, can just let them know, we need more power in order to supply the rest of Texas so we don't have brownouts and so on. And Riot can just say, well, we, we'll just back off on the amount that we're going to mine then, but you need to pay us for that so that they can go ahead and have that and they take off the top so that Riot blockchain takes the amount of power that's left over off the top for their operation for the, the Bitcoin mining, and then they can still supply the rest of the state of Texas. And in July, they reported that they produced about 318 Bitcoin, but they produced about 439 in Bitcoin with just those power credits. In other words, they earned 9.5 million from power credits and earned less than that from actual mining of Bitcoin. Well, how do you do that? How do you go ahead and find a power station that's not being used and then dedicate it for crypto mining and then basically help out the, the state of Texas when they need it? Well, it's in Rockland, Texas, and I've been to this exact facility and stood exactly where they put their their crypto mining operation before they came along. And we were looking to do the same thing, to put in a crypto mining operation. 
but it was a little before its time and didn't quite work out. But Riot was able to step in, get better funding, and go ahead and use the amount of power that they could get from that power station there and go ahead and use that 100% for their crypto mining operation. But I think that they listened to what the rest of Texas was going through. So they said, we understand that the state of Texas might, on occasion, need extra power. We have the capacity to go ahead and provide power to their grid. So that's how the deal with ERCOT, which is that local grid operator, came about. And they said, we will support you whenever you need it. You just let us know what you need and we'll be able to, to supply that. Now, overall, the amount of power might seem huge by data center standards. We are talking three, four, five, up to 700 megawatts of power that is possible at this site. And about 400 of that is used for their crypto mining right now. But um, they, of course, can ramp that up and are steadily doing so. But they were able to just draw that down from the, about the 400 megawatt mark that they're operating now to go ahead and supply that to the grid. Now, if you're a grid operator or you've looked at that, you realize that, hey, 400 megawatts, that's something that's nice to have. But it's not necessarily an overall problem solver for the entire grid of Texas, given how large it is. But it is something that can help out with locality and help out overall ease the burden. So anytime that you can do that and you can start to aggregate, say, not just the Riot blockchain, you can aggregate a bunch of these different groups together, get them all to take themselves off the grid or supply the grid. You're going to have a better grid and grid operations, especially during those peak times. And of course, those in Texas, the grid operator, again, ERCOT, the governor, everybody is probably more than willing and happy to have them do that and say, you know what, this is a deal that works out for us as well as you. We get to keep the power on, the lights on, the air conditioning on, of course, being the big draw all the time. And we don't have to worry about getting any you know, nasty emails from unsatisfied customers. Plus, it keeps everyone happy across the board, and we're more than happy to pay for that type of reliability. Overall, this Rockland site with Riot Blockchain is the largest Bitcoin mining facility, and that's by developed capacity, which means that they have about 40,000 miners working to go ahead and mine Bitcoin. Now, I've talked about Bitcoin before. Not a big fan of how much energy they require. So you think of how much that is day in, day out, 400 megawatts, and they're increasing to 700 megawatts to go ahead and just do Bitcoin mining. We'll see how this turns out. But right now, their efficiency is okay as far as that goes. But it would be nice if Bitcoin changed how their overall software was done so that you're not expending all of that energy just to do that mining. Now, the Bitcoin price is solidly staying around twenty dollars to $30,000 per coin. So you can see that still mining makes sense, especially for someone like Riot. They're just going to keep at it with that 40,000 uh, Bitcoin miners, and they're just going to keep that in that Rockland facility, build that out to 700 megawatts. And if Bitcoin doesn't work out, in other words, it starts to drop in value, or you just don't have as much to mine anymore, they can go ahead and switch up to one of the other cryptocurrencies, of course. So I can imagine right in their portfolio, they can go ahead and launch right into Ethereum and the next coins. However, you don't need as much capacity and you don't need as much horsepower in order to go ahead and mine like Ethereum any longer. 
because of how the software is. So it's a much greener technology than Bitcoin is. Until then, they're going to be pulling off of this Rockland site, which is an old power plant that didn't necessarily have the capacity to uh, be used for much else. So, hey, it's really cheap power that these crypto miners can just use until it essentially Bitcoin drops or dies or they get every single coin out of it. So it looks like the Riot blockchain has a pretty solid business plan overall. Um, we just might see some of that legislation change, but probably not given that it's Texas. And um, because it is going to be friendly for them to go ahead and operate there, there is a second facility that they're looking to launch. And they have that underway now. I'm not quite certain if they finished that off or turned anything on quite yet. I don't know if they're going to do the traditional commissioning like you might see in a regular data center in order to make sure that they have the operations is safe and operational in a good way. Um, so that can be scalable across the entire facility. But they do have a second site in Texas that are going to be turning on sometime here in 2022. That initial start is somewhere around 400 megawatts and it is expandable up to a gigawatt. So there might be a gigawatt um, in Navarro, Texas that is operating say around 2024 just doing Bitcoin mining. So it looks like that's going to continue and they are probably going to be the largest Bitcoin miner in North America and one of the biggest players in the world just focused on Bitcoin mining. Now they're not doing this alone. Um, they do have a partner in Priority Power and that Priority Power team has been looking to find those Bitcoin miners and provide them that low cost energy that they're looking for. On top of that, they're just saying, here's like a roof. It's not even a completed shed. Um, and we can go ahead and throw all the miners in there and they'll be protected from most events that you're going to have um, in Texas. And they can go ahead and provide that at dirt cheap prices so that you don't have to worry about a lot of that overhead, which is what most of these mining companies are looking for. It fits right up their alley with being low cost energy and they can provide a lot of power. And therefore you can just land a lot of those crypto miners and just start operating as soon as you possibly can land them, buy them, get them configured and upload them and you're good to go. You start mining right away. And that of course is, uh, is crucial for what these Bitcoin miners are doing. So we'll also be following up with some of the other partners that Priority Power might have and to see if they're outside of Texas, that kind of thing. So we have some investigation to do there to see how that is going as far as that business and if that's growing or if that's shrinking or how that cryptocurrency market in Texas and elsewhere that they're seeing, how is that doing overall? Let's jump into a few other places besides the United States and North America, just to look at what the investments are doing. I know that there's been articles saying, oh, well, a lot of the data center industry is doomed. All those REITs, those real estate investment trusts are going to fade away as these hyperscalers build their own. Well, I think we're seeing the opposite of that, not just in the United States, but all throughout the world, including the World Bank. Uh, the IFC looking to invest and fund a data center in Mexico. Um, they're uh, helping out with OData or OData, depending on your pronunciation, whether you're in Brazil or not. But they had worked with the Brazilian company before, and they are launching into Mexico now. And this is something that IFC 
is looking to do in a number of different locations. So they will look at the location, they'll look at the viability to it in much the same way as a developer. And they will say, here's some options here. And that includes data centers. So if you're not aware of that, the IFC, the World Bank, is looking to do the same thing as a lot of those uh, developers and real estate groups. Now, the other thing that the World Bank, though, and the, the uh, IFC does they will also look at the renewables that are available in that particular area. Now, they are heavily involved with other things such as wind power and solar, and this is something that they're looking to couple is with data centers in order to provide all that power to a data center and see what their renewable mix can be and to, of course, improve that with other funds that they're looking to do. Now, the IFC is, um, whenever you're doing that with the data center, it can be very complex, like as far as the contractual arrangements, who's involved, who owns what, and how things get done, who, like the building process, all of that can be very confusing. But whenever you're looking at that holistically, they will march you through that. They will make sure to bring the funds uh, in millions of US dollars to see about that completion and it might not be huge projects because a lot of like latin america of what they're working in and africa and other countries it's not going to be the 100 megawatts kind of deals they are talking about like the 10 megawatt data centers or smaller and that's a great launching point to go ahead and land in a certain area and add a certain zone for these companies so they can really launch and then serve that area because that demand isn't quite there yet now, the IFC is not the only one that's helping out with looking at what's viable in those different areas, uh, especially like Latin America. But there's a lot of demand for places such as Chile, where the data center growth is starting to jump in leaps and bounds. Now, you might look at the Chilean data centers, such as in Santiago. Um, one with Ascentia is just opening up, and they're opening up their second one there. But Santiago and other places up and down the coast of Chile, you might look at that and say, well, isn't that earthquake zone? Isn't that just like California? But a lot of the, uh, the things that Chile has to offer makes it a very viable place to put a data center. Now, anytime that you're looking to do that, what you really need to do is also look at who might move in. So they might say, well, we have a customer that is already signed up for, say, 10, 20, 30, 40% of that data center. That means you can go ahead and launch even at 10% just to say, we need to get this thing built because we have somebody that's going to be a paying customer that is willing and able to move in. And it might take you a couple of years because the, the construction and how the designs are done and how everything is implemented takes a little bit longer. Plus, there's the same amount of uh, the jurisdictional um, reviews, those kinds of things that happen, whether you're in Chile or Colombia or Mexico, wherever that is, you're still going to have to go through that and prove this is our data center, how it's going to operate. And they have talented structural engineers that can say, how is this going to stand a, any earthquake or seismic activity? And you have to show all of that. And it makes the data center itself a little bit more expensive overall. But if you can do all of that and get through those hurdles, you're definitely landing in an area that's ripe for growth. And you're going to be setting yourself up in order to have that success long term. And even though you might only have 10% of your data center filled at the start, the growth potential there is starting to really ramp up quickly. Now, like any zone or area, the hyperscalers are going to look to see where they can land. And if you have a data center that's viable, like in Santiago, it's probably going to be a good thing for you in the overall future. And if you already have your data center set up and operating, that's great. 
they can go ahead and start to land some of their services and offer their services, whatever the, the case might be, whatever they're looking at in that local area, if they want to call it a region or a zone or whatever they want to call it, at least they're providing it for that area. And therefore it can help out with that data center expansion because once those services start to attract customers, um, other businesses want to grow there, suddenly they need to land at a data center and that can be it. And it's whether they're using the hyperscale uh, equipment and all those services, or they just want to land their own equipment and you know have their own services taken care of by somebody else. Those data centers need to be there in order to provide that service as well. Add on to that that Santiago has a good talent pool for data centers. Well, technology in general, they're more savvy than a lot of other areas. So you can look to have and hire people that are going to walk in the data center. Maybe they don't know the data center business in and out, but they can certainly pick things up and be trained and have the technical skill and prowess to operate that data center pretty easily. All right, moving over to talk about EMEA and all of Europe and everything that's going on there. Colt, have you ever heard of Colt? Yeah, major telecom player doing data centers. And if you don't know, Colt is the city of London Telecom and it was founded uh, decades ago and they just keep expanding. And this time it's in Paris, one of the major hubs for data centers. And they're going to expand their Paris Southwest data center by more than 50%. So that's a nice expansion for them. The expansion is about 12.8 megawatts, so they're really expanding nicely in Paris, right in the major metropolitan, and they're probably going to be having some other expansions, not just in Paris, but in other places as well. Also in EMEA, there was a couple expansions in Ireland, um, but Echelon is not one of them. So they were looking at launching in the, the South Dublin area, and um, Echelon uh, filed a legal challenge. So they're saying, well, why do some people get in and others do not? And they fully have a right to do that. So we might see some more challenges across Dublin and just Ireland in general based on some of these changes that they're looking at. Now, it does have to do with some of the power that they have and the requirements, but it looks like the amount of power that's there is going to be sufficient. So it's not just perceived power, it is actually real. So there was some talk and some articles about back and forth about whether it's real or not, or the data centers are going to be sucking the entire power out of the island or not. And of course, um, sometimes things can get a little inflated. So it's really looking at down at those numbers and what's really attached to the grid and what can be supplied and what their PUE and performance is going to be is going to matter. So that's been a big part of what Dublin has either allowed or denied as far as their, their operating of the data centers in Dublin, around Dublin, or even just across all of Ireland. Overall, I'd say Ireland is probably a great place to be. Iceland as well, if you're going to land a data center and um, it's got all sorts of connectivity and such. So probably going to see more in Ireland and uh, other locations outside of London. As London grows, other places are going to grow along with it. Now it's not only about the power, it's also about the water use. So moving away from Ireland though, it seems to be fine there. But in Holland, it's getting a, a little bit drought stricken. So people are looking at who are the major water users. And one of the major hyperscalers is there using a lot of water. About 84 million liters of water is what they estimate in 2021, a full year. 
And that was a year there was a lot of water shortages um, where there was a lot of heat that caused those water shortages. And the hyperscaler Microsoft was one of them that used a lot more water than they thought they would. So if you're not used to liters, um, just divide by 3.8 or make it simple, divide by four um, liters per gallon. And so instead of 84 million liters, we're talking about you know 20 million gallons of water that they're using. And that's after they said, well, we're only going to need about four to, you know, three, four, five million gallons of water a year or 12 to 20 million liters of water a year. But they used much more than that to run their data centers. Now, if you've kept up with what Microsoft is fully intending to do, they want to go waterless overall. They recognize how much water they've been using, not just at this site but it's sites all throughout the world and they are looking at operating at higher temperatures and looking at other tricks to just do some temperature trimming or even reducing some of the load by not allowing some of the processing to occur during peak times. In other words, trying to share or shed that load to other places and slowing things down just a tad at some of their highest facilities where they might suddenly be using all sorts of water. Now, they're looking at that water reduction of 95% in the coming years, and that's an excellent move. They're going to be saving a lot, but probably if they're raising the temperatures to do that, they're going to be saving a lot on their energy use as well. But right now, it doesn't sound good that they're using so much water, but they've been keeping things operating very efficiently for years, and they're probably one of the most efficient data centers is operating in Europe along with some of the others that they're competing with there. And using that cooling technology to do, to do that evaporative cooling, which is, I believe, the same, same technologies that they're looking at, that's probably going to be the best use as far as data centers. What you might want to attack instead of one of these big hyperscalers is take a look at what those enterprise data centers are doing. And you can aggregate much more than the the size of the, you know, any of those hyperscale data center locations and realize that they're probably consuming 10 times as much water to do the same amount of cooling, but they're spending a lot more water to do it. So it's been long said that that's one of the benefits of the cloud. So if you move your enterprise data center to the cloud or to one of the real estate investment trusts, you're going to get a better efficiency out of it on that data center as a whole and that operation. So if there's a way that you can start to shut down those legacy data centers, those that are over two decades old that haven't been revamped, don't have new equipment, operating in the the kind of the older modes and not raising temperatures and such, not trying to push the envelope, those are the ones that you should probably be looking at first and seeing how much water they're consuming. Aggregate that up, and I'd be very curious into what that is doing across that same region. Now, the other part to this is the company, Microsoft, Google, they've both promised to be water positive by 2030. And that means not just like in certain locations so that they can say that their positivity offsets their negativity in other regions, it's to help out here. And one of the ways that they're looking to do this is to collect rainwater and collecting a lot of rainwater there well that's great but if you have a drought and you don't have rain for a while you're going to be pulling from whatever water resources you can to operate now we'll see what they're going to be doing and when that's going to take effect 
but right now it doesn't help out that current situation. And of course, whenever people are looking around, they want to point to a big figure, somebody that's consuming a lot of water that they can point to as a single source of that water going to and saying why their farms are not having enough water, etc. Well, this is an easy target as opposed to, say, a government data center that's been sitting there as a legacy data center and not getting more efficient over the years like some of these other hyperscale data centers have. I also wanted to touch on the chip shortages and what the major companies are doing about that. One of the big things is that they're cutting back on the amount of data center equipment that they're going to be buying and using and then replacing. Now this has been really good for the circular economy which has been building up year after year. It's caused a lot of e-waste or electronic waste uh, of course through the years but that's allowed a lot of other companies to go ahead and buy used equipment that say one of the big operators has only used for three years and decides to roll out with something else and replace that equipment instead if they're using it five to six to seven years or longer they're going to save money avoid this chip crisis that they're currently doing and avoid that shortage that they might be seeing and they're going to save a little bit of money, but it also allows the others to catch up as well. So if there's a lot of investments to be made, etc., it's that we have too much of this e-waste that's been coming out and it allows those enterprises to go ahead and soak up some of those things that others might be you know, putting out on the market a little bit better, a little bit more easily. Now, that might be concerning for a lot of people because they look at cloud, data centers, everything that's technology related along those lines as being that chip industry's strongest customer, strongest sector that they're looking to do sales. So they're seeing, well, does this mean it's going to be an overall sag? I would not think so. Given the number of data centers that are going up and the amount of technologies that are being deployed, there's still going to be a lot of purchases into the future for all the companies. And that means that there's going to be new products, new chips, et cetera, that they're either making themselves or they're having somebody make for them. And that still means that there might be a slowdown. So the, even though we might see that ramp up, the, the inflection of that angle might not be as steep as it was before. So if anything, we might see it plateau a bit or tilt towards a plateau as far as the overall sales. But I can't see that that is going to dip or go away anytime soon, especially because all of these chip makers have plenty of other customers besides the cloud and data centers that they're going to be providing for. Now, the other complexity to this is the types of chips that were coming out, too. So you might have a stockpile of a certain type of chip that is very plentiful, but you're looking for those specialized chips that might be needed for certain components or configurations. Think of it like the auto industry is treating it, and you could treat it the same way for a, a server, for a data center. So if you have a number of components, say 50, 60, 100 components that are going into a car that you need all these chips for, and you know one or two or three of them is going to hold up releasing that car out to be sold, it's the same thing for a server. You might have all these components, hundreds of components for a server, and then you have you know, a couple, three, maybe a dozen of these unavailable parts and, and pieces, and suddenly you can't complete it, and therefore it can't go out or it can't be shipped out. So if you start to look at it that way, you start to see what the bottleneck is, and then you can plan against that. And once you start to see where that's going to lie, especially if you're one of these big companies, you can say, well, we know that we're going to have a, an issue here for some time to come. So we are not going to move away from the, the uh, servers that we have, the IT equipment that we have. We're going to just keep it a little bit longer. But of course, this isn't 
something that's going to be a major issue, most likely for all those chip manufacturers, they can easily pivot to all the other industries that are out there. If you think the self-driving car or the other tech sectors, anything like that, that's looking to have different things, we're going to probably see, well, what are the chips that are more plentiful? How can we use those chips instead or an array of those chips to use that in the equipment that we have with that surplus on that side in order to make sure that we can still have a viable product and get it out there at that same cost? So we might be having the complexities of all these things interplaying, but there's lots of levers to pull here when you're a chip manufacturer or whether you're on the flip side and a chip buyer. You can do a few things to look at what's viable here, what can we do to help improve for ourselves, for our customers, etc., and find new markets or find ways to extend what you already have as far as your services, your equipment, extend the life to that, and that can help out immensely whenever you're looking at that. So there's probably some volatility here across the markets. We're probably going to see some waves from those chip manufacturers to those cloud hyperscalers, etc. But this probably not going to be too much of a turmoil because the chips that are needed now are probably going to be very similar to the ones needed six months from now. But we're also going to need chips a year from now, two years, five years from now. So anything that you can do to set up your chips, your chip manufacturing, or on the flip side, if you're one of the buyers, how can you set that up so that you can become a long-term buyer for the future, for that projected future, for all the services that you need to provide for your technology? And you can go ahead and set yourself up to make sure that you are viable on that, no matter where you, which side of the, the fence that you are playing on. With all of that pent up demand, you're likely to see a huge growth in that secondary market. So what used to be sort of, you had your kind of wish list of things that you might be seeing the hyperscalers reselling or others reusing, that might start to dry up a little more and the prices start to drive up just like what we saw with the used automobile industry as well. So we might see something very similar to that come up very shortly. Thank you again for listening to the Green Data Center podcast, season four, episode three. Also, like and subscribe. It's one of the ways that we get feedback on we're doing things well or what we could be doing better or what you'd like to hear about. We very much appreciate your support. And of course, if you are new to the data center industry, or if you have somebody that's joining your team that could use a little bit more training, feel free to look at the courses at udemy.com, U-D-E-M-Y.com, and you'll see all the courses that will get you into your career and advancing quickly. Courses at Udemy have discounts from the greendatacenterman.com website. So use the website, zoom to the bottom, click on the courses there, or send somebody that you know that needs training, and we're glad to help them out with any questions as well. Until next time. <laughs>